you guys need a Bible this morning, we have a few in the back. If you need one, just raise your hand and make sure we get you a Bible to follow along with. We're going to be back in 1 Kings this morning. You can start making your way to 1 Kings chapter 2. As you <clears throat> open, I, I <laughs> know I'm going to say something a little bit controversial here this morning, but bear with me. It's true that Chick-fil-A is delicious, and In-N-Out is, you know, just keeps the menu simple, and it's satisfying, but neither of those restaurants even come close to the powerhouse that is McDonald's. Now, hold on. Just hold on. Before you... Pick up stones, don't freak out. I'm not, not talking about quality of food, certainly. I'm not talking about a personal uh, conviction or belief. I mean, I like McDonald's breakfast maybe like once a year, and that's it. I'm good. That's all the Mickey D's I need. Um, <laughs> I'm frequently at Chick-fil-A. I'm the highest member you can be on the app. Um, you know, the Lennington's love in and out. Those two are certainly our favorites. But here's the point. Even though most of us seem to share a, a low view of McDonald's, our opinion can't erase or undo the domination of the McDonald's franchise. Last year alone, Chick-fil-A reported about $6.4 billion in revenue. It's pretty good. Uh, in and out, a little under $4 billion. Nothing to be ashamed of there. But the Golden Arches topped out at $23 billion in revenue. It's just a lot of, it's a lot of fries and double cheeseburgers and, and nuggets. Any successful franchise is built on principles. It's going to be established by values and beliefs and a little bit of history of, of Mickey D's established by a gentleman named Ray Kroc who insisted that to be successful, every franchise needed to embrace their core principles and they were about quality and service and cleanliness, which I feel like maybe has waned a little bit. And lastly, value. Uh, any, any franchise of McDonald's needed to embrace those principles in order to be successful like the others. And Chick-fil-A established their little chicken-shaped kingdom by prioritizing the family, and they displayed a and still do a genuine love for the customer. I mean, everybody, you know, says my pleasure and stuff. And they also have a heart for their employees. In and out too, their sort of double-double success is founded on a commitment to providing customers with the freshest, highest quality of food and also a, a spotless, sparkling environment. So these fast food franchises, they're, they're built on principles, and they have been established by a vision that's 
been followed. That's what makes them so successful. Those companies just have flourished as beliefs of the kind of master plan were embraced and those principles were obeyed by those initial leaders. The success of those companies is largely due to that, that the, those first leaders did what they were supposed to do. They obeyed. They, they followed orders. They embraced the plan. And because of that, their little miniature kingdoms were established and very successful. This morning, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 2, the, we're going to see something very similar. It's going to still be true, although on a much larger and much more important scale. Same is true for the kingdom of God. It's established by principles. It's established and kept secure by two very important details here. And we're going to see this morning in 1 Kings 2 that the kingdom of God is established and it's secured by a plan. And when the leader follows the plan, when God's king obeys and follows the principles established by God, then God's kingdom is going to be kept safe. God's kingdom is going to be secured. It's not going to be about you know, fresh ingredients or clean bathrooms. But our big idea this morning is this. The kingdom of God is made secure by obedience of believers and the removal of enemies. God's kingdom is going to be established or made secure by the obedience of believers and the removal of enemies. In other words... Those who belong to God's kingdom, they, they keep it safe when they obey God's word, that they secure it when they follow his plan. And although it may surprise us, that also includes preserving what God is doing from those who would try to destroy it. Four times our chapter is going to use the word established. And that's something that we need to pay attention to. I know we haven't been in an Old Testament narrative for some time, but in this part of the Bible, as you study Old Testament, especially narrative, which is what this is, when an author repeats a word, that's something that you want to pay attention to. Anytime the the author there alongside God's spirit, as they write that repetition of of a word is really, really important. And so often it's God's way of trying to help us understand what the theme of that very chapter actually is. And that's what we'll find in chapter 2. God wants you to know how his kingdom is established, how it's secured. And another long chapter this morning, I'm going to read it, so read along with me. We'll find out why this is true. As Chapter 2, verse 1, As David's time to die drew near, He charged Solomon, his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord 
may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now you also know, verse 5, what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war in peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt, about his waist, and on his sandals, on his feet. So act according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for they assisted me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Behold, there is with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite of Bahurim. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I'll not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not let him go unpunished, for you're a wise man, and you'll know what you ought to do to him, and you'll bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. When David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, do you come peacefully? And he said, peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you, and she said, speak. So he said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel expected me to be king. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Now I'm making one request of you. Do not refuse me. And she said to him, speak. He said, please speak to Solomon the king, for he'll not refuse you that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as a wife. And Bathsheba said, very well, I'll speak to the king for you. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, and the king arose to meet her, and he bowed before her, and he sat on his throne. Then he had a throne set for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. She said, I'm making one small request of you. Do not refuse me. The king said to her, Ask, my mother, for I'll not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as a wife. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, And why are you asking Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him also the kingdom, for he's my older brother, even for him, for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zariah. King Solomon then swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who's established me and set me on the throne of David, my father, and who's made me a house as he promised, surely Adonijah shall be put to death today. 
So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehida, and he fell upon him so that he died. Then to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth to your own field, for you deserve to die. But I'll not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted in everything with which my father was afflicted. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, which he'd spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. Now the news came to Joab, for Joab had followed Adonijah, although he had not followed Absalom. And Joab fled to the tent of the Lord, and he took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told King Solomon that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord. Behold, he's beside the altar. And Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, fall upon him. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, Look, the king has said, Come out. But he said, No, for I'll die here. And Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus spoke Joab, and thus he answered me. The king said to him, Do as he has spoken, and fall upon him, and bury him, that you may remove from me and from my father's house the blood which Joab shed without cause. The Lord will return his blood on his own head, because he fell upon two men more righteous and better than he, killed him with the sword, while my father David did not know it. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Massa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood return on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But to David and his descendants and his house and his throne, may there be peace from the Lord forever. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and fell upon him and put him to death, and he was buried at his own house in the wilderness. The king appointed Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in his place. And the king appointed Zadok, the priest, the place of Abiathar. We're almost there. Now the king sent, and he called for Shimei and said to him, Build for yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, and do not go out from there to any place. For on the day you go out and cross over the brook Kidron, you will know for certain that you will surely die. Your blood will be on your own head. Shimei then said to the king, The word's good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. But it came about at the end of three years that two of the servants of Shimei ran away to Achish, son of Makah, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Look, your servants are in Gath. Then Shimei arose and saddled his donkey, and he went to Gath to Achish to look for his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. It was told Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned. So the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, You will know for certain that on the day you depart and go anywhere, you will surely die. And you said to me, The word which I've heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the command which I have laid on you? King also said to Shimei, You know all the evil which you acknowledge in your heart, which you did to my father David. Therefore the Lord will return your evil on your own head. King Solomon will be blessed 
and the throne of David will be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and fell upon him so that he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. We did it. Long, but helpful. I want to just quickly chop this section up here into two parts and help you see a valuable lesson this morning. As you think about God's kingdom, of which some of you are a part as believers, as young Christians, how is it secured? And the first part is this, how is God's kingdom established or secured? Number one, by obedience to the true king by obedience to the true king, and that's really verses 1 through 12. As King David is nearing death, you might remember from last Sunday that, I mean, he's real cold, so he's close to death, and he knows it's time to sort of charge his son with those important words and final words, and that's what he does here. These are the words that matter most for his son. He's Only got a few left, and it sort of spills out here pretty quick. Verse 2, be strong and be a man. That was purpose to encourage Solomon for the the tough role of being a king, being a leader of God's people. You're going to need some strength. You're going to need to act like a man and and lead those people. And then verse 3, to walk in God's ways by keeping his, and then these four words, statutes, commandments, ordinances and testimonies. What is that? Well, all those words there, all those terms are purposed by King David to represent the entirety of God's word. It's all of it. In verse 3, and I think here we begin some helpful instruction for our own lives. Verse 3 is as helpful for Solomon as it is for us. What he needed was it's really unmistakable. It's clear that it's all of God's word. There are no parts that he is going to be allowed to ignore or sections that he could sort of disregard because at the moment he might be the most powerful man in in God's kingdom. He needs all of it, all of it. The statutes, commandments, ordinances, testimonies, It's unmistakable. It's crystal clear what he needs. And then kind of another part and maybe another word to write down beside unmistakable is it's accessible. David, his father, told Solomon where to find it. It's written in the law of Moses. It's right in front of him. It's available. It's accessible. And when it came time for God's people to have a king, Moses, back in Deuteronomy, gave some really clear instruction for that king. This is what he said. It'll come about in Deuteronomy 17. It'll come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He should write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the priests. And it should be with him. And he should read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by carefully observing all the words of this law, all these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left. So not only was it a copy 
of the law of Moses that he was supposed to turn to, but it should have been his own copy. He would have learned that from his father. You need to take this copy of the law of Moses and go make your own copy. And you write it down word for word, and that should be with you, and you should read it, and you should study it, and you should know it and understand it. It's the, the whole thing. What he needed, it was unmistakable. It was so clear. It's so accessible, and it's also profitable. Look at the benefit for Solomon in verse 3, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Just no other way to to translate that. Those are the words that we should write down when we think of God's word for ourselves. It's unmistakable, and it's accessible, and it's so profitable. And verse 4 speaks of this promise. God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would always have one in his line on the throne, and if they would simply obey, they would enjoy the fruits of God's promise. Should Solomon remain faithful, do what he's being instructed to do, and if those after him would too, the point is that there would be enjoyment and happiness for God's people as they kept the throne. David makes it clear, obedience is everything. Obedience to God's word is the most important thing by far. How is the kingdom kept secure? How will it be successful? It's not the way we think of it as humans, as people. It's not about alliances. It's it's not about expanding the borders. It won't be relationships. It's not about the trading or the financial growth. It's not even going to be in the strength of the military. It's obedience to the word of God. And I think that's just as important for us today as we think about all the lessons that Jesus taught his disciples. Maybe one of the most famous sermons and and moments for Jesus, Matthew chapter 7, here's how he includes his, his most helpful sermon. He says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. You guys know that story, most of you do, and the opposite is true. The foolish man doesn't build his, his house on the rock. He builds it on the sand of the world, and the same storm comes, and it beats against that house, and Jesus says, great was its fall. So we know how crucial God's word is for us. Even as a young Christian, even for you, what God expects of you, it's all right here. Unmistakable, clear, so available, so accessible. So many of you have three, four Bibles by the time that you hit junior high. And of course, it's so profitable. It's so beneficial for us. No matter what the culture says, no matter how difficult it becomes, we must insist on obeying the the word of God. You don't add security to God's kingdom by anything other than obedience to his word. It doesn't matter if you're athletic or brilliant. It doesn't matter what you do for a job one day. It won't matter where you live. None of that matters. Simply that you obey the true king. 
that you obey his word. And verses 5 to 9, we'll pick up some pace here. It includes David's orders for his son concerning some some folks we may not remember, but it's Joab and Shimei, and it kind of gives Solomon the right direction for how to proceed in the coming moments as he thinks about those who are against the kingdom. And that really leads to our second part here. How else is the kingdom secured? I would say this, number two, by removing the enemies of the true king. The enemies of the true king must also be removed. And it's a long section here, and you know because we just read it, but the elimination of some of the kingdom's greatest threats are all right here. Adonijah's first, verses 12 to 25, and, and he makes a request that might slip by us. doesn't seem like it's all that you know, negative, or it doesn't seem like it's that much of a threat, and it might have even slipped past his mother, Solomon's mother Bathsheba, or maybe she knew what she was doing, and she was trying to fire up Solomon, but here's the point. Asking for this woman, this this woman named Abishag for his wife. I know it seems harmless to us, but having the former wife of the king was the equivalent of claiming the king's throne. So even though Adonijah promised to be on his bestest behavior in chapter 1, it seems like he hasn't quite let go of his desire for the throne. If he wanted to live... His request is a really dumb one, and because of it, he's executed. He's a threat to the throne, and then that just sort of amps Solomon to keep rolling here. Abiathar, the priest, is next. He's banished for his disloyalty. Then Joab is executed in verses 28 to 35. It seems like he's still maybe working with Adonijah, and there's some sins of his past. Second Samuel jealously killed two commanders of the army after Joab is is Shimei and he's spared his life, kind of. He's banished to live in Jerusalem. He's never allowed to leave. And Shimei knows that's a good deal. He knows what he's done. He knows how he treated David. He knows what he deserves. We've said it before, but any sort of former enemy or threat to the king, they're just, they're just eliminated. Solomon spares him, sends him to Jerusalem, tells him, never leave. But perhaps Shimei thought Solomon wouldn't find out if he just made a quick trip to get his two runaway slaves, but, but he did. Solomon finds out and calls him on it and ends up putting him to death. But here's the point, okay? The point is so clear. Verse 12, it says Solomon sat on his father's throne and with some initial hope of obedience, the kingdom is firmly established. If you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle that word there in verse 12. And again, our chapter ends with the exact same phrase. After removing the enemies of the kingdom... Kingdoms once again established in the hands of Solomon. And you can get into the weeds a little bit of this chapter, and you can label Solomon some cold, callous killer. 
And you could be mad at David and wonder why he was so apathetic and lazy. Why didn't he take care of these guys when he was king? But the point is still right in front of us. If the kingdom is truly to be secured, the threats that oppose her must be removed. And if we fast forward through this book, we'll come to realize that the whole book of Kings shows us that none of the descendants of David are able to do what David instructed. Not even Solomon. None of the kings obeyed as David had instructed. And it's good to know that that disobedience doesn't undo God's promise to establish his throne through David's line. But it does show us right away, we realize that the ultimate king, the final king, the true king for God's people is not going to be found in this book. He's going to have to show up later, and he did. Jesus, the son of David, in the line of David, did appear, and he did establish his kingdom, and he does call for our obedience He does insist that those who oppose him, and he warns us that those enemies will one day fully and finally be removed. Matthew 13, Jesus said this to his disciples, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, that's Jesus speaking of himself, says, we'll send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear, Jesus says. Enemies, they must be removed. A couple of years ago, I, I think it was a Saturday night, I was up late, probably working on a sermon, and heard some screams coming from the hall in our home, and we found a little invader. It was a little lizard about yo big, and cute little guy, but not in that moment. In that moment, that lizard was an enemy of the Lennington household. Leah wanted him removed immediately. (laughs) All my kids did not like screaming, and I laughed, thought, you know, maybe I'll just, I mean, he found his way in. I'm sure he'll find his way out tonight. But then I thought, how can we truly have peace in our home tonight? How can we rest knowing that that little guy is doing whatever it is that lizards do? He had to be removed for us to truly know peace, for us to truly have rest in our home. And and that's the same for the kingdom of God. God's enemies cannot linger. Jesus has initiated his kingdom, and one day, God's word tells us he will return to establish it fully and finally. 
Those who obey his word, who receive his salvation, they'll enjoy his blessing. They will enjoy the fruits of what he graciously gives in eternal life. But those who oppose him, they will be dealt with. They will be removed. It's the only way God's kingdom can truly know peace. Those enemies, like that little lizard, they cannot linger. There's hope in that for the believer. As we think about the enemies of God's kingdom that oppose us and make our life difficult, There's hope knowing that God will one day fully and finally deal with that. But there's also a great warning for us in that promise. Those who are rejecting the king, those who are disobeying the king, those who are choosing to live in evil and wickedness to disobey what God has said, a great warning. And even in an illustration that we learn from this chapter, so helpful, so meant to be encouraging. It's also a moment for you, even in junior high, to consider and ask yourself, am I in the kingdom or am I against the kingdom? There is blessing and joy for the first. And there is a great warning for the latter, for those who oppose My prayer this week has been that even through a chapter like this, that that you would be pushed towards God's gift of salvation, that you would see how his kingdom is secured. It's always been this way. And it will remain that way until he returns. Father, thank you for this morning, a few moments to, to study a great chapter as we learn about how your kingdom has always been established, how it's always been secured. Lord, it's good to know and see that you are a God who doesn't change. It's so good to obey what you've given us. Lord, thank you for that warning for these young students this morning to see, God, that if they oppose you, their eternity is in jeopardy. God, I pray that you would use a chapter like this to speak to these hearts and souls in the room this morning. God, we ask for your work of salvation to continue. God, be gracious, be merciful, be loving to us as you have been for so long already. Draw many to yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.